0: the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one
1: thing in common— Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So, Cass, um, our
0: regular listeners will know that we frequently joke about being dress detectives. <laughs> That we should get some dress detective hats made, etc. But
1: today, we're actually going to chat with a real-life flesh-and-blood dress detective. Yes, because unbeknownst to us, our cheeky little moniker has now officially become an occupation in the UK. Who knew that studying fashion history just might earn you a detective badge? I know. But if you think about it, Cass, like um,
0: uh, it really does feel like something that like Sherlock Holmes might have studied in all his in all his, <gasps> you know, academic pursuits, and I am such a big fan of the Benedict Cumberbatch series Sherlock. Oh yeah, me too. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's actually a fun new Japanese version of Sherlock Holmes stories where both Sherlock and Watson are ladies. So, Yay for the lady detectives.
1: Yeah, such is our guest today because we are joined by British fashion historian, media personality, and dress detective Amber Butchart, who has recently been enlisted by forensic investigators in England to assist with the analysis of crimes involving clothing. So cool. So her work as a forensic analyst was recently profiled in this fascinating article on The Guardian. And I, for one, cannot wait to learn more about her work with the police and some of the other outside-the-box applications that she has found for her knowledge of fashion history. Amber, welcome to the show today. Amber, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're, we're super
0: excited to have you. And and. We're going to jump ship a little bit today because many, many, many of our listeners have asked us since we first launched the show, how do you become a fashion historian? And we've actually addressed this question in our very first fashion history mystery mini-sode. But um, one of the reasons why I'm super excited to talk to you today is because There are lots of intriguing avenues that one can explore once one does become a fashion historian. I mean, all the places that it can take you. And the crime lab isn't exactly one of the first things that comes to mind. Um, But before we delve into that, can you tell us a little bit about how you first became to study fashion history? And and I, I really love learning about from friends when they entered the field and how they entered the field um, because you have to admit what we do is rather niche.
2: Yeah absolutely and when I was studying I mean when I was at school when I was at university I had no idea that this really existed as a career. Um, It's certainly not something I was ever told about when I was at school Um, so it really was I sort of stumbled into it in a way I guess. I'd always really loved second-hand clothes. I always went charity shopping, I bought clothes from markets, from vintage stores. This had been something that was very familiar to me from, from my whole life. My mum my bought all of our clothes in charity shops as I was growing up. So a sort of innate love of old clothes and old things, I think, sort of has underpinned everything I've ever done. I studied for a literature degree Um, I was always quite academically minded when I was at school and when I finished my degree I was sort of I sort of floundered over that summer you know after graduation I was like what am I going to do I've always just really loved reading and writing essays and I realized that my other love had always been old clothes Mm -hmm. so I got a job on the shop floor at my favorite shop which was a vintage store called Beyond Retro and started working there and in my lunch breaks I would read loads of the sort of vintage books they had, loads of the fashion history books that they had. Now there wasn't a huge library there but there was certainly enough to pique my interest and I decided to go back to school um, and to study a master's in history and culture of fashion at London College of Fashion by this point, I was also working as the buyer for the store. They, I think they appreciated my geeky interest in <laughs> spending <laughs> my lunch breaks reading these books. Uh, and so I had kind of forged a, a sort of new position in the store, working on quality control, working on the sort of product coordination, essentially the buyer. Um, So I was doing quite a lot of traveling at this point as well training the people that were picking the clothes for us Doing trend reports and translating those into sort of secondhand clothes So what sort of secondhand clothes they could source for us that were you know on trend that were fashionable So there were a few different avenues to the job. I studied for the masters. This was a while ago now it was 2004 2005 And so that sort of really married the academic with the practical work that I was doing at the vintage store with my sort of lifelong passion for old clothes. And so that's really how it started. After that, I think the internet, like many of us, probably played a huge part in it. I um, started doing my own writing online, started blogging about fashion history. Um, And it was really through that that I started You know, working towards getting paid, writing commissions, eventually working towards books, book
0: proposals and and everything else that has come since. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating how there are so many different paths to come to what we do. You know, some people come through art history, um, and some people come through, like, straight history. But there are a lot of people who, who come through the like, costume design, theater, um, and, and also working in the industry, kind of like, which is how you came to do this, so— there's not just one path that's what i always tell people
2: definitely not definitely not and i think now there are more and more courses that you can do that are sort of history of design history and culture of dress there are there are more options now for you to study this at an academic level but i mean absolutely i think when when i was applying to university i had no idea that that fashion history as a as a discipline really existed um so I think now the sort of academic options are certainly broader, but it's still something that you can get into through a m- multitude of
0: routes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're going to fast forward a bit through more than a few of your accomplishments that I think we're going to come back to later, but I'm dying to know, pardon the pun, um, how exactly <laughs> you came to be a forensic crime analyst. This is amazing.
2: Yeah, well, this was a, a total surprise to me as well. I mean, in a career full of many twists and turns, this certainly has to be the major plot twist. <laughs> <to> me. <laughs> I guess. So just over a year ago, I was I was doing some promotion for the, the, the BBC TV series that I did that aired in the UK last year called A Stitch in Time. Uh, and I was on the radio talking about how, you know, how clothes can communicate and, you know, various different things to do with, you know, why clothing is important, why studying the history of dress is, you know, is is a, is a valuable tool for us to understand the past, et cetera, et cetera. Unbeknownst to me at the time. Um, a man called uh, Dr. Carl Harrison was listening to this radio show, and he runs a forensics company called Electo forensics and he'd recently been in discussions with the National Crime Agency here in the u k talking to them about the sort of ecosystem of the forensics world now obviously there's a huge focus on DNA within forensics, which has absolutely revolutionized you know the, our ability to solve. Crimes, as we know from the multitude of sort of media, TV, podcasts, etc., etc., about true crime that sort of center on DNA largely. But they were also concerned that, you know, with this really important tool, we need to also not forget about the power of stuff as evidence of using things. Uh, And they were thinking about various different uh, experts that they had on the National Crime Agency database, and the only other person they had that had any kind of expertise in clothing and fashion was a a tailor who had been listed in like the 19th century or something it was it was basically something they hadn't given any thought to for a really long time Mm -hmm. so he heard me talking about this you know what we can learn from clothing communication etc and just kind of thought it chimed really perfectly with what they'd been discussing So he contacted me, sent me a really nice email and was like, you know, is this something you'd be interested in? Kind of, you know, I understand this is maybe not your usual line of (laughs) work thing. And I was just kind of blown away by it. I, I kind of sent it to various members of my family. I discussed it with my boyfriend and I was kind of like, am I, I felt I feel incredibly underqualified to be working in this area and my my boyfriend actually was he was just like look it's just the same as everything else you do it's research Mm -hmm. you're going to be asked to look into something you can apply the knowledge you already have and then you go away and research they're not going to be looking for you to you know come up with answers on the spot or you know it's it will be fine so I was like okay let's give this a go (laughs) crikey (gasps) and so that's really how it came about and uh, really no one was more surprised than me to start working in this area but I am really enjoying it so much it's such an interesting and unusual application of you know the work that we all do yeah and it what's been really fascinating is that it does actually take me back to my days as a vintage clothing buyer because a lot of the stuff that I do a lot of the stuff that I look at and I'm now um involved in training as well so I'm training mm. Um, CSIs, crime scene investigators, to sort of raise awareness, um, provide more understanding of how clothing can be used as evidence, how it can give us clues within crime scenes. Uh, And all the things that I talk about, all the things we look at are the similar sort of details to the details I was training are vintage pickers to look for. So, you know, things like that, look at the fastenings, look at the fabrication, look at the labels, look at all of this information. Um, So it's going right back to my earliest days working with sort of material culture of dress, I guess, but with an entirely different purpose. So it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, this this actually kind of reminds me of of this a story. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the milliner Lily Dashey. Oh yeah, originally French, but that she was mainly known as an American milliner. And there's a fascinating story about how this Lily Dashey hat actually helped identify um a woman who had committed suicide. So she had checked into um, a hotel in New York City under a pseudonym under a false name. Um, But when they found her hat, they were actually able to take it back to the company. And by the number or something in the hat, they were actually able to find out who she was. So there's a history of this. It's it's, it's incredible.
2: That's fantastic. love to find out more about that. I'm really hungry at the moment for anything I can get my hands on to do with clothing, crime forensics I've been talking a bit via email with Alison Matthews David mm-hmm. based in Toronto and a lot of her research looks at clothing and crime we're hoping to meet up um, at some point this year to to sort of talk about what we're both doing yeah being a, a fashion historian as I'm sure is the same for you guys you, part of your job is to disseminate information but a huge part of the job and a you know, big reason that I keep doing it is because it's co- you're constantly learning yes so it's given me a whole new area to start investigating and it's tying together loads of my previous interests as well I've always been quite interested in the sort of material culture of death mourning dress things like that I love visiting cemeteries so all of these things are sort of being tied together in this work that I'm doing for Dr. Carl Harrison is also a forensic archaeologist I've been doing some short courses in archaeology as well at a local archaeological trust. It's just given me these huge new areas to kind of go and explore and investigate and then see how I can incorporate that into what I'm doing. So it's just, it's brilliant. It's really fascinating.
0: And that's also one of the things that I really love is that there's so much, like our field is wide open in the respect that there's so much work to be done that you can kind of like get in there and figure out like whatever your particular angle is, it's it's not too overcrowded yet that, that there is the latitude to do that, which is amazing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a definitely a flourishing discipline. Um, you know, there's way more academic options for studying fashion history. There's more museum options, gallery options. But you're completely right. I think we're in a really, we're in a sort of golden age in a way, an age where the discipline is starting to mature, starting to ask sort of difficult questions of itself as well because as a discipline you know rooted in a branch of art history it's you know traditionally was very concerned with elite lives and a certain you know a certain kind of narrative I guess and that's being really challenged and questioned by people at you know at all ends of the discipline looking at ideas around class and dress and everyday experience, questioning, you know, decolonizing the discipline. There's so much interesting stuff happening at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So can you please tell us about
1: your very first case?
2: <laughs> yes. So the first case I did, I actually did by photographs. They sent me photos from the crime scene. What happens now is that I go into the lab um, I'd say, t- you know, obviously it's always better looking at the actual objects in real life, if possible, as opposed to photographs. But the first one I did, I did um, looked at photographs and I had to, I had a conversation with Carl before I opened the photographs because a huge part of this new work and a huge part of the sort of preparation I have to do for it is really getting myself ready sort of preparing myself in a way to work with imagery and with artifacts that I never thought I would come into close contact with or you know have to have to look at basically so I called him and I said you know am I going to be okay what are these photos of I'd not seen anything like this before you know what's am I going to be all right so the first few cases I worked on were actually me kind of um feeling my way around what I was comfortable with what I was able psychologically to do in many ways and he kind of said oh god I'm so sorry I forget that other people don't work <laughs> in this area all the time you get very desensitized in a way and it's not that it sort of undermines the importance of the work that's being done but you know if you're working in a in a in an industry where you have to discuss violent death you know um sexual crimes, all of this horrendous stuff, you have to develop a, a tolerance to it. Otherwise... Right,
0: you're protecting yourself.
2: Exactly, exactly. So he kind of talked me through what was going to be in the pictures, and I said, okay, fine. And I was completely fine, actually, looking at the, the pictures. The garments, uh, in this case, were um, part of an Adidas tracksuit and some Adidas trainers, sneakers. And so this was kind of a fortuitous first case in a way because sportswear is so easy to date. Right. Um, It's, you know, it has the actual month and year of manufacture in the label. Now, you don't know this if you don't know what numbers to look for. But, you know, if you do, then you're like, well, actually, I can tell you what month and year this was made. So me being able to provide that information to look at these images to write a report around the images and around you know how you can date sportswear meant that they were actually able to eliminate some of the missing people that they had you know on a list of people that they were potentially ascribing to the remains that had been found oh wow yeah so as a first as first cases go it was pretty you know i it was as it made me feel much more confident in that oh actually I can bring something to this and you know it can actually be helpful and also for me kind of thinking oh actually I you know I I am equipped to be able to deal with this I can actually deal with this line of work and I just have to tread my way through it literally on a case-by-case basis Mm -hmm. and and sort of see see what happens and see where it goes
0: right so Uh, You say this was your first case. How many have you worked on now? And is there another one that you would like to share with us that has been particularly interesting or maybe even satisfying?
2: So I think I've worked on about five uh, or six cases now. Um, And I'm also starting to do some of the training as well, some of this training which we're hoping to develop um, and expand a bit as well. Another case that I've worked on, that actually involved much uh, older clothing. Mm -hmm. A a woman, I think, in her 70s had died and her adult children were clearing out her home and they opened a drawer and found um, the body of a baby. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's quite an upsetting case, to be honest. I mean, not that they're not all upsetting, but um, this one particularly, I think, you know, it's a certainly sensitive the body had been wrapped in a number of clothes and so it was those clothes that I was brought in to have a look at to see if we could sort of ascertain how long the body had been there for now the clothes from a you know from a material culture perspective the clothing was quite interesting there was a bullet bra that I could have kind of immediately recognized as having come from the late 50s or early 60s And there was a polyester, heavy polyester, sort of 60s blouse, and also a homemade skirt. So there was quite a lot to sort of go on here to sort of investigate. A lot of the clothes had been repaired. Mm -hmm. Um, There were various points where, you know, they had certainly been cared for. Um, The bra itself, luckily, it still had the label in it and was still legible. So I was able to go away, research the bra company, research some of their advertising, and try to narrow down the date even further. And it's elements like that, you know, think things, underwear, the you know, the history of underwear underpins so much of the history of fashion, especially in um, you know, sort of European-American dress, where it's the changing silhouette that really sort of dictates that, you know, sort of fashion history in, in many ways. So that, again, sort of really tied in lots of elements of my sort of previous research and lots of elements of my previous interests. And But again, with this entirely different, really sort of fascinating application. So it was a completely different case, a completely different type of case, but still incredibly fascinating.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I would imagine that putting that your specialist knowledge to work for justice is immensely satisfying, right? I'm curious about your working relationship with the other investigators. What was their reaction to what you brought or continue to bring to the table as a fashion historian?
2: Um, well, I think that I, I kind of sensed a certain skepticism initially. Mm-hmm. Not from Carl, who had brought me in. He was, he was and remains very much on board and thinks this is an, you know, a really important and interesting line of inquiry. When I first went in to conduct some training for the CSI um, crime scene investigators that's when I really suddenly felt how much of a different world this is. I'm used to working in universities you know arts universities in um, museums and galleries in media and suddenly to sort of walk into it was the Surrey um, the head of Surrey police to conduct some training I suddenly felt for the first time in a really long time in my adult life I felt very out of place Mm -hmm. (laughs) I felt like I felt really conspicuous in what I was wearing um, and I felt that it was maybe undermining my credibility which is interesting because I spend a lot of my professional career railing against that idea that what you wear and having an interest in dress should undermine your credibility right (laughs) but I had these kind of sensations as like oh god I shouldn't have worn a turban this big (laughs) um but as we started the training and as it went on I actually I just had a brilliant time um we went I went for lunch with some of the other people conducting the training who have all worked in this industry for a really long time and a complete experts in their field uh, and I kind of thought that they would think that um, I, I didn't think they would really have much respect for what I was doing I've had massive imposter syndrome I was like why am I here why have they brought me in here what can I possibly share <laughs> that will benefit any of these people doing this incredibly important work mm-hmm. but we had a fantastic time we had a lot of fun the um, CSIs all were really quite interested in what I was discussing, what, you know, when I was talking about this idea that clothing can communicate. In one of the training sessions I did, we got onto some really interesting discussions around not only how clothing has been involved in cases in the past, but also people's own wardrobes, getting people mm-hmm. to thinking about the decisions that they make every morning when they're getting dressed are they wearing if they're wearing a uniform that's obviously one sort of professional reason for choosing what you're wearing but if not you know checking their labels thinking about what they're wearing one guy told me about this um like 1950s hawaiian shirt that he has that all his friends laugh at when he wears it but he really really loves it so there was you know there's always commonality when you're talking about clothing right that's what I find really fascinating and that's why I think it's such an important route of understanding the past It's because we all still get dressed. Even people who aren't interested in fashion as a system, people who don't follow the catwalks, people who don't read fashion magazines. I don't really read fashion magazines to be honest. As a child growing up I was had no interest in fashion as a system. What I loved was old clothes and what I continue to love is the stories that old clothes can tell us. And there is this commonality across time, across place, with these decisions that we're making, the clothes that we're wearing, where we're able to get them from, who made them, all of these we still have in common.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's one of the things we say at the very beginning of every single episode of the podcast is that the, every day the, there's one thing that we all have in common. Practically every human on, on the planet gets stressed every day. And that's something that binds us all together.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so I think people, you know, if people hear you're a fashion historian, they assume you're, you know, that, that there are still these discussions of, you know, superficiality that get banded around with fashion. And even, you know, fashion history as a discipline still, you know, does suffer from having that kind of reputation, unfounded reputation from other um kinds of historical research and historical discussion at times I certainly found that you know various projects that I've tried to get off the grounds I still have resistance to a lot of the time people still thinking you know why will people want to hear about that it's just clothes Mm -hmm. and so it really is that commonality that I think is is so important
0: I mean, I feel like I've definitely many, many times had to defend kind of like my interest, or or maybe maybe I felt like I had to defend my interest. But, like, I think once you start really talking to somebody about how this all links back to, you know, politics, technology— Economics, capitalism, um, and, and that's 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 the hook. Like then those those eyes go from this kind of like confused, glazed-over look that I used to get like ten years ago when I told people that I was a fashion historian to now. Fast forward to now, I think because of the popularity of museum exhibitions, people are starting to actually know a little bit more about what it is that we do. You know, so many people saw the Alexander McQueen show, or maybe they've seen the new Frida Kahlo show that's been traveling. Um, it was at the v and and now it's at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. But but people are kind of recognizing lay people, I would say, or, or just the public is starting to become aware of fashion history as an actual profession. Um, and have you noticed this also?
2: Yes. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, from when I did my master's, which, you know, like I say, is quite a long time ago now, I started it 15 years ago, even in the world of academia, there was very much, you know, a lot of the classes were sort of began with this discussion of like, of how marginalised as a discipline it was, Mm -hmm. even within wider design history, within wider art history, let alone within wider history itself, and then within wider academia. Um, And there wasn't even that much academic work that was being done at that time. And so to see how much it's grown, and especially with sort of public facing, um, you know, outputs, museums, galleries, things like this, it is just it is really fantastic. And I think there is definitely a growing understanding that, you know, we can learn some important and interesting things from this study.
0: Yeah. And um, I mean, I would say in terms of like public-facing things, your own work has certainly played a part in this because aside from your work as a dress detective, um, you have worn more than a few hats as a fashion historian and some very much in a traditional sense. Um, You're an educator. You teach at the London College of Fashion. Will you tell us a little bit about the classes that you teach?
2: Sure. So I am an associate lecturer at London College of Fashion, which is where I my master's all those years ago i actually first started teaching undergraduates when i was doing the master's degree there um and it's something i've been doing um, to you know in various degrees kind of ever since so london college of fashion takes a very um cultural studies based approach to the study of dress and the body um you're we're teaching we're the academic wing the historical and cultural studies department of a design school essentially. So we're trying to get the students to contextualize what they're doing, uh, whether it's fashion journalism, whether it's you know fashion design, whatever they're studying, we're trying to get them to sort of think about it and conceptualize around what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a definite sort of really strong cultural studies approach and a lot of theory looking at the body as well and how dress relates to the body, how the body is represented, all of these kinds of areas. Um, I also am a sessional lecturer at University for the Creative Arts at the moment, another um, art and design school, where I'm teaching research on the fashion media and promotion degree. So that is really, it's a very different pedagogical approach. Um, I'm teaching the students, you know, research skills, where they can be researching, trying to teach them the value of research. A lot of the students are looking to become fashion photographers, or maybe stylists, or maybe journalists. Um, And so it's about trying to, you know, get them to underpin their work with research with a broader cultural and historical um, sort of understanding that they can then bring into whatever it is they're doing, whether it's creating imagery, or whether it's creating text. Um, So those are the sort of two main lines of teaching that I do. But I also do a lot of sort of visiting lecturers at various universities around the UK as well and various museums and galleries Uh, I'm quite lucky in that I get to travel quite a bit um, at the moment sort of talking about things that I really love talking about so it's good
0: and you're also an author which is actually how we first came to be in conversation about you joining us on the show you had just had a new book come out and and I if I'm not mistaken it's your fifth book that just came out fourth or fifth Yeah, my fifth book. Yes, Yes. and and I and I emailed you and I was like, hey, do you want to come on the show and talk about your book? And then you mentioned your work that you're doing in forensics with the police, and that kind of got the ball rolling on a slightly different path. But will you tell us a little bit of, about your books? And and I just want to say I'm so thrilled that you included an image of Elizabeth Hawes in one of your books, which she's one of my all-time favorites. And we've actually already done an entire podcast on her. So if you guys want to go back and listen to that, if you haven't, please tune in. She's one of my all-time favorites.
2: I love her. I think she's great. I think there's a real, there's not enough that's been written about her. I think it's a, you know, it's a story that deserves telling more and more and more, I think. Um, But yes, the books that I've done have largely been um, sort of thematic, um, I guess, rather than taking any sort of chronological um, historical approach. One of my earliest books was Nautical Chic, um, which I think is the one that had the Elizabeth Hawes picture in it. That was actually... um, born in my master's research for my dissertation for my master's I looked at uh, mid-Victorian swimwear and the influence of the naval uniform on swimwear design Mm -hmm. so I was looking a lot at Victorian um, iconography I was looking a lot at empire and how stories about empire were told at home through the body of Um, You know, through women's bodies and also through sailors bodies, looking at the sexualisation of the sailor, lots of different areas. The nautical, like the sea and our wardrobes is something that has always interested me. I grew up in a seaside town. I live in a seaside town again now. And I've always been fascinated with the British seaside. It's such a particular idiosyncratic phenomenon. Um, And the clothes that we wear at the seaside and clothes that are inspired by the sea is a really long standing interest of mine. So it was amazing to be able to turn that into a book for Thames and Hudson. Obviously, it was hugely expanded from the very focused MA research that I'd done. I looked at various different figures, sort of professions associated with the sea, from the sailor to the officer to the sportsman and even I even had a chapter on the pirate which was really (laughs) good fun (laughs) Uh, and so looking at various garments that have evolved from life at sea through to trends that have been started by the sea to you know looking at sort of how we mythologize these figures and how that is then translated into fashion, so lots of different areas to look at, which was great. I wrote a book called "The Fashion of Film after that uh, for the Octopus Publishing Group, um, looking at which films have influenced fashion. Um, this actually also came out of some academic research initially. I did a visiting research fellowship at the University for the Arts London. A couple of years after I finished my master's, where I got to spend some time researching in the St Ma- St Martin's Archive and the VNA Archive and the BFI, looking specifically at how Hollywood costume impacted London fashion um, in the 1930s, because often that story of the 1930s and you know, the, you know the rise of Hollywood, it's often talked about as, you know Paris versus Hollywood. And I wanted to look at how London really fitted into all of that. So again, that was the kind of genesis, but the book was a lot broader than that, looked at various different genres and looked at sort of costume within those genres and then how those films have gone on to influence fashion designers or street trends, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I have to say, I think that um, my favorite little bit of that book is how you tie in the movie Tron and eventually tie it back to Alexander McQueen. Amazing.
2: (laughs) thank you (laughs) writing that sci-fi chapter I absolutely loved it I it was kind of my favorite chapter to do I really didn't before that I wasn't I you know I would not describe myself necessarily as a sci-fi fan um I've you know I grew up watching old Hollywood films and was kind of like this will be an interesting chapter to do but you know it's Whatever. I absolutely loved it. The you know, the intersections between actual science and scientific discovery and fiction and film and fashion was just I just couldn't get enough of it. I really enjoyed it, really, really enjoyed it. After that, I wrote a book for the British Library. They basically wanted something to they wanted to publish some of their enormous collection of um fashion plates that loads of hasn't been published before. So I got to spend you know, some time over the course of the year, sort of looking through various things in their archive, sort of absolute dream job, really lovely. And then the latest one, the uh, it's called the Fashion Chronicles: Style Stories of History's Best Dressed. And the concept of it was to essentially choose one hundred of the best dressed people in history. Uh, so I quite liked this idea. The the concept was actually my my literary agent's idea. I just really like the idea of taking this really popular trope and a trope that is often also used to kind of pit women against each other.
0: Right, best dressed.
2: Yes, yeah, you know, who is the best dressed? And then kind of turn it on its head and actually use it as a way of communicating the importance of clothing throughout history. Um, So that's what the book does. So it covers kind of 5,000 years. Oh
0: no, just 5,000 years.
2: (laughs) Just a tiny little 5,000 years yeah, so I mean, it's very much for a kind of um, a sort of general reader because it has this incredibly broad time span. It covers loads of different continents. But the idea was to, again, just kind of try to get people to, you know, have a greater awareness of the fact that clothing has always been important throughout history. This is not something that's superficial. This is something that kings and queens and political despots and political activists and protesters have used as a tool throughout history.
0: And and, and alternately, sometimes a weapon even.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it was kind of almost like a manifesto for dress history in a way by choosing 100 people um, and talking about their kind of sartorial stories as a way of sort of illuminating the past through clothing.
0: Do you have a particular favorite?
2: Some of my favorites in the book are the least expected people. So I've got some kind of fashion history um you know well known within sort of fashion history as a discipline people you know people like Beau Brummel, Amelia Bloomer, um Marie Antoinette, people like that. But my favorites to include were people like Karl Marx. Um, that people just don't expect to see really on a best dressed list. (laughs) Um, There's an absolutely brilliant essay called Marx's Coat by Peter Stallybrass that I talk about in the entry on Karl Marx and about how what he wore actually affected what he wrote. Mm -hmm. He had to, uh, he was researching in London, researching at the British Museum um, and he was often, as many people in the sort of 1860s in Victorian London want to do, he would often pawn his clothing, pawn his family's clothing as a means of, um, I think as Beverly Lemire talks about, you know, a banking system in clothes, this idea that you could recoup the value of your clothing temporarily uh, until you got money from elsewhere and then you could buy your clothing back. And so Karl Marx was sort of, you know, was involved in this kind of system of exchange but when he pawned his overcoat, he didn't have the sort of veneer of respectability that he needed to enter the British Museum to do his research for writing Das Kapital. Uh, he also talks about textiles, clothing, an awful lot throughout the whole of Das Kapital. It's really intrinsic to what he's writing about because it's so intrinsic to the Industrial Revolution yeah. Um, and, you know, ensuing sort of industrial capitalism that comes from that. So it was the stories like that that were actually my favorites rather than the sort of glamorous you know big hitters but yeah those ones were definitely my favorites
0: well i mean as if this was not all enough already you've already worked actually in multiple television programs about fashion history you mentioned uh, first A stitch in time which you did with the bbc how did A stitch in time come to be? And what was your experience in translating fashion history onto the screen?
2: A Stitching Time came about, it, I had been pitching ideas to the BBC for a really long time. Um, I'm very keen, obviously, as we all are, on the idea that, you know, dress history is a great way of understanding the past. There's this commonality that we've talked about, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, I, it's a visual me- medium as well. I think it's, you know ripe for tv um I've been involved in various you know different forms of media throughout my career anyway even outside of dress history for a long time I was half of a dj duo and we did lots of weekly radio shows and you know various different bits and pieces like that so it's kind of always something that I've done uh, and always something that I've been quite comfortable with doing Um, So I'd been pitching various different ideas to the BBC. I had done a radio documentary, two part radio documentary called From Rags to Riches, um, which looked at the rise of vintage clothes. And then also looked at um, the sort of global ramifications of our cast offs, looked at the charity shop system that we have here in the UK and how that actually has Um, global implications um, rather than, you know, it's not just a national thing, it's, it's, you know, these things are global systems so um, I had done the radio documentary and I was actually doing some filming for a completely different thing with the BBC they were showing the Versailles uh, drama here I don't know if you guys have had this in the States it's a Studio Canal production all about yeah, about yeah, Louis XVI, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. So when they showed that here, they did what I think is a really brilliant idea of having a sort of five, ten-minute section at the end of the show called Inside Versailles. Now on this, they had two historians here based in the UK, Greg Jenner and Kate Williams, and they would discuss the episode we'd just seen and try to kind of unpick the historical fact from the fiction which I just think is brilliant. I think more historical dramas should do that, should, you know, you know, have a bit afterwards where people sort of debate what in here was real, what had to be dramatised, et etc. et cetera. I just think it's a brilliant, you know, methodologically for public history. I think it's great. Anyway, in each episode, they would have a different historian on who specialised in a particular area. And so I filmed one of these with them about fashion at the court of Louis XIV, which of course is a brilliant area to discuss. Really, you know, sort of rich area for, um, you know, fashion history of fashion still impacts today in many ways in terms of, you know, Louis the Fourteenth putting so much effort into creating France as this sort of center of fashion
0: mm-hmm. and, and an economic force really
2: exactly economic force political you know political force it's, it's you know we still think of Paris as the center of fashion you know largely sort of due to to him. It was So it was while filming that um, section for Inside Versailles that the production company, who was the BBC, basically said, this is really interesting, this is great, would you be interested in expanding this into a series? And I said, yes, I've been trying to do something like this, <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, um, and so they kind of essentially came up with the format of A Stitch in Time, which was that I choose a work of art for each episode, and then the absolute... Genius historical tailor Ninya Michaela and her team would recreate the clothing that's seen in the in the portraits. So we have an element of art history, we have the social history, we have the actual remaking. So this kind of experimental archaeology angle to it, all of this kind of combined, and then
0: at the end, I get to try on the clothing. Yeah. Which is something that is so rare for us as fashion historians, um, you know, like, as you know, like when when we work with museum objects, absolutely, there is no trying of things on. So that has to be a delight.
2: (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, museums and stores definitely a little bit funny about you know trying on <laughs> the artifacts so it was just an absolute dream um, come true to be able to walk in these footsteps walk you know and also in a way sort of got across this this sort of phenomenology of dress without using that kind of terminology but you know the idea that something we talk about quite a lot in the teaching at London College of Fashion is that the way that clothes feel on our body the way that clothes interact with our body the way they make us stand walk the way they affect our physicality is something that should be thought about um and has you know you can get into all kinds of lines of philosophy even when you're thinking about it in that respect and so kind of had that element there as well in me getting to describe how I felt when I was wearing these clothing these you know items of clothing whether it was medieval armor or whether it was Marie Antoinette's um, chemise a ren, you know, just having the feeling of walking in these footsteps was just, you know, absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah. And if our listeners are not in the UK, how can they find a Stitch in Time? It's actually
2: streaming on Acorn TV at the moment in the States, but also, and you didn't hear this from me, you can find the whole series on YouTube. Ah which it's not supposed to be, obviously, because it's a BBC production. And I honestly have no idea who put it up there, but it's all there if you want to find it. I,
0: I think there are many uh, listeners that are about to um, run and not walk to YouTube to check that out. <laughs> um, and I know another project that you worked on um, is is has already aired, but I do want to mention that you were, of course, on The Great British Sewing Bee. Can you tell us just a little bit about that as well?
2: Sure. I've been involved with the Great British Sewing Bee since Series 2, and we just had Series 5 on now. Um, the Great British Sewing Bee is is essentially the sewing equivalent of Great British Bake Off, which I believe listeners in the States.
0: Yes, and people are huge fans, including my boyfriend. He's, like, obsessed with it.
2: Oh, great. <laughs> <right. laughs> Oh, brilliant so the sewing bee is essentially the yeah the sewing equivalent of bake-off so it's all amateur sewers um but who are you know really fantastic amateur sewers they have a series of competitions to go through each week and a series of eliminations to find the best kind of amateur sewer um in the country um, and in each episode, they have a sort of small fashion history section looking at the, you know, the the past, you know, looking at the history of whatever they're trying to make that week. And so that, of course, is the area that I've been involved with. Um, this season, I was kind of the resident fashion historian. So I was kind of across the across the series. And then they bring in various other experts as well. People who specialize in uh, or people from particular Brands that are being discussed or people who specialise in particular areas. So there's always kind of two voices in each of the fashion history um, sections. Um, but what's been really great about this show is that we are seeing more and more people making their own clothes at the moment. We are kind of going through this renaissance, which is, in, which is great because it's more ecologically sound, of course, than the sort of systems of fast fashion Um, that we are also embroiled in at the moment. And so the show really celebrates that and has loads of really, really loyal viewers, a really loyal audience who watch because they love the show, but also because they love making what they see on the show, which is great.
0: Yeah, Um, and I have to say, one of the things I find especially fascinating about what you're doing right now is, is how you are kind of like, working in a very traditional manner as an educator and an author as a fashion historian, but you're also taking all your knowledge and applying it in all these other various ways. I I think it's incredible, and I think that really is probably the future of our field, what we're doing. Um, do, Do you have any thoughts about where we're headed
2: Uh, Well, thank you very much. That's very nice. I think you guys are also doing, I mean, you're doing the same thing. You know, this podcast is brilliant, has a huge following of fantastic subjects, um, you know, every time it airs. You guys are also authors, you're researchers, educators. Um, I agree there is a lot of um, what I love about being a fashion historian is that that's almost an umbrella term Mm -hmm. for, for you know at the core and I say this I recently did a um, visiting lecture at the University of Brighton here where they have a brilliant history of design program brilliant history of fashion um, program and I was actually asked for the first time I was asked after my talk by a lot of students like how do we get into media how do we get into media work that's what we're really interested in and I suddenly kind of thought god I'm giving this really um Warped view of how easy it is. <laughs> so, oh, no, no, no.
0: <laughs> I, you're in there slogging it out for a good 10 years before you get there.
2: <laughs> exactly. And I was also like, oh, please don't think it's easy to get these things underway. For every one project that I get green lit on that goes ahead, I've had like 10 or 20 rejections or ones that haven't, you know, got past the drawing board or that haven't been commissioned. So really don't think this is easy, an easier route to get into media. And what I said is like, you have to always bring it back to the research. That's essentially what we all do with all researches. And then you can choose which outputs you feel comfortable with, which platforms you feel comfortable with, whether it's things like, you know, Instagram that that Cassidy is so fantastic at or people in the, here we have like Kate Strasden who is just so brilliant at Instagram or whether it's, um, you know, writing blogs, whether it's writing for broadsheets, whether it's writing books, whether it's TV, whether it's podcasts, whether it's YouTube. We have so many different platforms available now, but you have to have your research at the core. You have to have that passion and that interest and that inquiring, inquisitiveness that is essential to generate the information that we do and then you can pick your platform so it's almost like the you know the term fashion historian is like this umbrella term for all of these different things that you can do whether it's public speaking whether it's media whether it's writing or solving crimes <laughs> or solving crimes yeah or whether it's, it's you know academic research with you know fully academic outputs but you always at the core of it is the research for, for all of it. And that's what we all love. That's what all keeps us going is that love of learning and love of discovering more about
0: the past. Yeah. Tumbling down the rabbit hole, as we all say. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Amber, we are actually about out of time. I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This has really been a delight. Um, and I cannot wait to see what you do next.
2: Oh, thanks so much. Same with you guys. Keep up the fantastic work. Um, And I hope to speak to you again soon. Yep.
0: We would love to have you back next time you want to talk about a new project.
2: Lovely. Thanks so much. I'll hold you to that.
1: Amber, thank you so much for joining us. That was really fascinating and also so inspiring to hear about some of the ways fashion history is currently being applied outside the classroom, museum, or design studios. Clothing is, of course, inextricably tied to identity, so it makes perfect sense that the police would find the specialist knowledge of a fashion historian invaluable. Yeah, and and frankly, I'm kind of shocked
0: that no one had thought of this sooner. And I'm crossing my fingers that maybe it will open up an entirely new career path for people working in our field. So um, on that wishful thinking, I think that we will sign off for the week and say, may you consider what the clothes in your closet say about your identity next time you get dressed.
1: Remember to please join us for our Thursday mini-sode, Fashion History Mystery, where we answer you, our listeners, questions. And if you'd like to submit a question, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com, or you can direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And of course, you can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Looking for some fashion history swag? Check out our merch store at tpublic.com
0: forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. And thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry and everyone else over at iHeartRadio that makes the show happen each and every week. Catch you soon.
1: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.